let's begin. Mm. Thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. Welcome to the PAD webinar. Uh, this is Nadeem Ulhaq welcoming you. Um, we have today a very eminent speaker and a very interesting piece of research that we have to talk about. He's written a book called Why Has China Grown So Fast and for So Long? This is Khaled Malik. Khaled Malik has been in the UN in very senior positions, has run the famous Mabulak HDR report for a few years. The famous report that Dr. Mabulak made, Khaled Malik was in charge of that, the project director for that report. He was also the res rep in China, um, the, the UN res, resident coordinator in China, which is a very senior role where he spent many years in China and uh, got to know China very well, including he bought a lovely place somewhere in the mountains in China. Uh, we, we had to give it up. It was the long beast because of COVID. Just, yeah. just recently, actually, a month ago. I was dreaming of going there. But I know. I asked you to come, but you... I know. I apologize, but what mm -hmm. can we do? Such as fate. So anyway, so we have to... Uh, we have Khalid Malik. Then we have got, as a discussion, Saeed Afridi. He is a young Pakistani sitting in England. Uh, who is uh, into investment banking and has done a PhD in politics, but a keen China watcher. But even better, somebody who's not on the panel, but somebody who I managed to persuade yesterday to join us is Shahid Youssef. Shahid Youssef is a longtime China watcher, has written on China, has been also involved in China through the World Bank, a very um, you know, long career in, in the World Bank, senior official of the World Bank, has been involved with China, I think through most of his career, and has read virtually everything that I know of in China. When well, I don't know much, but anyway, he's far, read far more than I know of China, and he knows China very well. He's one of the um, more uh, ardent China watchers and China analysts in the world. So we, I think we'll have a great webinar. The reason for doing this webinar is that every Pakistani is a China expert. I know we are great friends of China. I know we are great uh, admirers of China, but every Pakistani at every webinar or seminar is a China expert. And I'm sick of hearing people tell me, we must do what China has done. And I ask, what has China done? Nobody seems to know. So today, at least I think we will get a glimpse of what China has done. And I encourage our students and our faculty to listen to this carefully because we must know. I mean, we must know what China has done and we must understand the Chinese model, as I said. Every Pakistani says there is a Chinese model. So today with these three eminent speakers, I think we will have a chance to understand what the Chinese model is. And for that, I'm very grateful to Khaled and uh, Shahid and Saeed for coming in and helping us work this out. So Khaled, over to you. Will you give us, unfortunately, I must confess, I couldn't get hold of your book because when I went to Amazon, the press- I, I actually send my, um, the, the unedited book version to your uh, staff. So at oh, you least did? You could okay. see it. Sorry, I didn't get it. Yeah, I said, and that can be circulated. The only comment I has is un, it's unedited. unedited huh? So at okay. least you can uh, see that. Huh? Fair enough. Fair enough. Mm. Okay, Khaled, why don't you take your time, introduce us the book, and then we'll go to the discussions. Okay. Well, first of all, good morning, everyone. I'm uh, in actually in Austin, Texas, where we were visiting family and stayed on. Okay. But, but I'm basically based in New York. Uh, as uh, uh, Nadim said, I've been working in the UN for a long time. I was very privileged to head the Human Development Report office, mm -hmm. the first Desi to run that office after Mabub. 
So actually, that made me, a, frankly, a better economist, a better development person. Huh? And um, let me start uh, by talking about why I did that book on China, huh? and then perhaps develop it further. When I went to China in 2003, I spent some time uh, talking to people at Harvard and at Columbia, just to prepare myself for this role I had and to understand better what was going on. And I met very distinguished people, people who had followed China for a very long time. And I thought I knew what was happening in China until I got to China. <laughs> and then you realize most of the stuff you were told by very eminent people was just plain wrong. <laughs> so I'm sure Shahid would have a lot to say about this. Uh, and that's the reason I started understand, trying to understand what was happening in China. And um, it was interesting because when I started my rounds and met the various ambassadors, one ambassador said to me, well, if you want to write a book about China, do it in the first three months. Because you, at that point, you think you know something and you have a clear idea what to say. And then another ambassador, British ambassador, who was associated with China for about 30 plus years, he said, well, I'm just beginning to understand China. So China is like an ocean and you're on a little boat. So you think you know something and you think you're learning something, but in the reality, the situation is far more complex. So I'm gonna try my best to try to contribute what I think happened in China. And just to let you know, um, the book was published in 2012. Uh, it got translated into Chinese. So it got into the Chinese market last year. And um, I can, there's an interesting story behind that as well. But what is fascinating is uh, the story itself, what happened to, in China. Um, you know, the life expectancy of China in the late 40s, immediately after the Second World War, was in the mid 40s. That low, uh, people were actually dying in the streets. And uh, I've always maintained that without Mao, Deng Xiaoping could not have succeeded because from the late 40s to about uh, mid 70s, late 70s, uh, they invested in education. They invested in securing the administrative strength of the state so they could do things. And they invested in destroying the social order. So by that time, Deng Xiaoping came with his accelerated growth approach. Uh, the assets were quite equal among people. So when growth took place, everyone moved up. So let me tell you the sheer scale of that phenomenon. I have taken a view and I've written about it as well that development is fundamentally about transformation, not so much as policies, but as transformation. And transformation is about people, the incentive structure, the capabilities. And China in basically maybe three, four, five generations is a very different place now compared to what it started. And I've tried to argue in the book that traditional economic theory is just insufficient to explain this growth and development. It had the largest sustained GDP growth ever witnessed, outperforming the previous tigers. The share of uh, world trade between say 1990 and by 2010 tripled and now it's gone four or five times. And what is fascinating is for the, the fast growth period which is 30 plus years from the late uh, uh, 70s was 
9, 10% per capita growth every year. Can you imagine the, the, the sheer numbers, what happens when uh, growth takes place cumulatively? And then even if you compare it in more recent terms, and if you're taking purchasing power parity, the GNI per capita now is 16, almost uh, $16,500. In 2000, this is already when many decades they've already grown tremendously from a few hundred dollars per capita, it was $2,800. And the average growth between the less fast period was still 9.5%. So think of the sheer progress. China is no longer a poor country. China has a bigger highway system than the US. And they're better roads, by the way. Huh? China is fully educated. It's a literate population you're talking about. If you look at the numbers involved in the social media, it's phenomenal. Huh? Uh, when you have educated people, fast growing people, so people, you know, a lot of Western observers uh, talk about growing, the growth rate is slowing down. We're down to six and a half percent, seven percent or whatever. Huh? But you have to remember the base is so much larger. So six and a half percent over a huge base is massive. You influence the world markets tremendously. So you have a, a situation that is not just growth, but human development. So in, in, uh, uh, in 1990, China was 50th among 190 plus countries. Now China is 85 about almost 189 countries. So it was not just income, but also health and education, which really transformed China. And the question is, how did it happen? And the fascinating thing about Western observers is that they've always predicted, and I, 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 I kid you not, look at the last 20 years of Western literature and serious uh, thinking people writing about economists and writing about China is that there's something always wrong about China. And next year is going to collapse. If you look at the Financial Times the last 20 years, every article in the Financial Times and talking about China says, well, uh, there's asset bubble, housing is gonna all go all over the place. And before you know it, there'll be a slowdown and the whole thing will collapse. Well, they must be doing something right if they keep on going despite all these uh, dire predictions. So even when the crisis happened, uh, the 2007, 2008, uh, I wrote an article for the, uh, in the newspapers that I, I thought uh, they were predicting that growth rates will go from 8% down to 2%, 3%. This is the World Bank uh, projections. I said, I don't think this will happen because China is structured very differently. They have administrative levers which they can use to fast or slow down things. China had for a long time the, a growth target of 8%. It wasn't uh, very um, mythical. Uh, these are, you know, the interesting thing about China is so until recently, China was run by, Chinese economic policy, development policy were run by engineers, not economists. I hate to say this in front of all these economists who are gathered in this webinar. And they were very simple. They said, look, how much of labor is coming into the labor market? And how many jobs we have to create in order to keep them employed? Because what the Chinese fear most is, Unst unstable world, uh, unsettled uh, uh, people's aspirations. So they said, okay, we need to grow by 8% minimum in order to accommodate this increase of labor coming into the labor market. So that was a very simple approach for them. Huh? And 
So we don't need to say too much about how well China has done in relation to others. But look at poverty. Uh, when I was, uh, uh, I'll, I'll talk about some interesting programs uh, at the very end, but I'll keep it at a macro policy level right now. Uh, poverty rates dramatically dropped from like 20%, well, 15% in 84 was a very low threshold for maybe closer to 20%, down to 1%, 0.5% now. They, they estimate that only 30 million people are still poor, but that's rapidly changing as well. And they're throwing money at it and, and, and roads and development, you name it. Uh, when the Chinese take on something, they take on uh, something quite profound. So regardless of the measure used, whether you do income measures or the World Bank measures, it's been the most dramatic poverty reduction in known history. Over 700 people have been lifted out of poverty. And that is a huge gain. You know, I called, um, uh, I had a lunch with all the leading um, um, uh, newspaper article producers like New York Times, Washington Post, and International Herald Tribune to lunch at, at, at our residence. And I asked them, why do you always have negative stories on China? And to me, this sense of lifting 700 million people out of poverty is a tremendous accomplishment. But that's never highlighted anywhere. And they said, well, actually, the editorial line on China is negative news sense. So we can always debate about this thing, but the perception of China, of others, is different. So uh, we had a very interesting uh, uh, leadership program where we were sending out leaders from China overseas. And I would uh, join them at the very end. There was, I brought Oxford and Cambridge together. And I made a presentation of my at that time, unpublished book to these, uh, these are vice ministers and above uh, 25, batches of 25. And I presented them and they were kind of nodding their heads. So I was very pleased that at least the Chinese saw what I was saying of some value. So historically speaking, uh, China is regaining its place in the 17th, 18th century, maybe also uh, to the uh, close to early 19th century. China is producing one third of the world's output. In 1950s, this is uh, the uh, Mao period, um, China went down to about 5% of the global output. This is Angus Madison's work. Huh? And we are now beginning to get back where China is 15, 16, 17%, depending again, these all purchasing power parity kind of estimates, how you uh, uh, judge these things. So you're getting there's a value of the size of the population, but it matters only if you increase their um, income levels and, and of course their development levels. So uh, I'll keep my discussion on technical matters quite brief, but if people want to have asked questions on that, I'm happy to do that. Um, you know, the China was given a lot of advice by Westerners, including the bank and the fund, it did not follow any of the standard prescriptions in the so-called Washington Consensus. And I remember when there was a big event in Shanghai in 2000, if I remember correctly, eight, was it? On, on a global conference. And um, uh, I was with, with Jim Wolfenson and he actually said, look, let's not talk about the Washington Consensus is dead. But Jim was able to see it in that way, but the Washington Consensus has still kept us going in many ways. Privatization, liberalization, market pricing are all seen as key to accelerating growth. 
but none of these things were really uh, followed. Uh, because the, you know, it relies, uh, neoclassical thinking relies on what is called factor allocation. They shift the surplus labor out of agriculture to higher productivity. Industrial sector, large wages of, large pool of labor keeps wages low and the return to capital investment high. All these are, but you know, many other countries have similar conditions. So why didn't they um, grow as fast? So that's the real thing. And I briefly cover that um, TFP models, uh, you know, the total factor productivity models in the book. And, you know, the thing about TFPs that I've list, I've said is, is a concept in search of a theory. Huh? Why? Because it's a residual. No one has been able to explain it. So you, it's either the beholder, you say whatever you want to say, and that's, that's where it is. Huh? Uh, so it's, to me, TFP is the beginning of a question not the, uh, not the answer as such. Huh? So, uh, I, so I basically focus on ownership, capacities, and policies. Huh? And, you know, uh, Deng Xiaoping made a very, couple of very profound uh, issues. He gave an interview to an American journalist, and he actually praised the Cultural Revolution. And the guy was a bit taken aback. So, why are you doing that? He said, well, because for 10 years we suffered and therefore, every person in China realized something different had to be done. So we, there was a, 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 an understanding reform was necessary and possible. And therefore, we were able to move the reform needle forward. And maybe based on what I see on um, the PIDE uh, uh, web discussions, and some of you are more active than others, I see that there's a lot of built up worry and concern about Pakistan as well. And then I also talk about capacities because to me, capabilities are the root to that. So in some ways, social policy becomes far more important than economic policy. Why? Because health, education, social cohesion, all those things are so profoundly important because they, they enhance your, your agency and you're able to do much more with what you have. And if you allow for other barriers to fall in terms of entry to market and others, many things are possible. I also talk about policies and I'll come back to that. Because in some ways you have to uh, align your policies to what you're doing on the social side. Um, so how, how was transformation happening in China? First, long-term commitment to reform and, and development. You know, actually Deng Xiaoping only changed the method, but the, the, the objectives of Mao was still the same, what they call the four modernizations. This is a very clear uh, uh, idea that he just changed the way to go about dealing with it. Uh, and that was also profoundly important. This clarity about the end while the means are flexible. And unfortunately, this has to be a national commitment. It's not a party, one party commitment. You, everyone must feel we want to develop and in uh, 20, 30 years, that's what we want to do because development takes time. Transformation takes time. And you cannot do it on a short-term basis. Second was what they call pragmatic, pragmatic gradualism. You allowed the process to take time. Transformation has to go deep and you cannot, it cannot happen overnight. Deng Xiaoping had this famous saying and one of you had commented on that. You cross the stream by feeling the stones. And the, what he meant by that was that from that point onwards, China has never undertaken macro policies in one go. They have never said, do it, 
This is the macropolicy into it. They always experimented. The value of the UN, frankly, was not, neither the UN the bank, and the bank had much to do with uh, direction and strategy. The China was in charge. You have to be very clear. Uh, capacity is, starts with your own internal sense of I am in charge. But we partnered with them on experimenting. And I can highlight a couple of uh, those interesting experiments. So you have to allow the process to take time. The third key feature was institutions have to be strong, but they have to change to meet reform needs. Then uh, shopping fundamentally restructured the bureaucracy as a foundation for reform. In three or four years, from 82 to 84, he replaced 60 to 70 percent of the mayors and section chiefs with people who were, had degrees and were more modern. In, you cannot have reform undertaken by people who don't believe in it. It's a very simple idea. And the fourth is provision of key capital goods, public goods. You have to invest in public infrastructure to open markets. The Chinese idea was connect the farmer to the market. And this is why you, you'll be amazed the scale of these things. And I can go into much more details about monetary policy and fiscal policy. For instance, on monetary policy, and this may be something of an interest to Nadine given his IMF pedigree, uh, interest exchange was deliberately kept undervalued. Why? One very simple reason. Because when you export, your margins are very small. The minute you change a little bit, and this is the things you have to do in order to develop. So there was no predetermined blueprint for reform. The elites, the people who ran China were very clear, they were pro-development because they realized that if, uh, if um, living standards don't improve, they're out of business. The Communist Party would lose control over China. That was very clear in their mind. And the people I met, uh, whether senior leaders to ministers and others, were also saw themselves as development soldiers. There's a task and we must do something about it. And they worked bloody hard. And by, I'll come back to the uh, bureaucracy issue uh, because I know that's a big concern for people. Huh? And they felt neither should they fork, go socialism, nor should they go all private sector. They want to do, do a middle path and they call it a, formally a socialist market economy. And another fascinating thing by China is that, um, you know, Beijing may seem to be very powerful, but it is half powerful. The provinces which are 80 million, 90, 100 million people have a lot of authority, a lot of uh, ability to do things differently. So there, there's a, it's not just a recent, a recent phenomenon, it's phenomenon from the emperors. They say that uh, emperor, that this Beijing is far, the sky is far, but we know where we are. Huh? So it's very interesting. And then, so there was strong ownership for reform at the local and provincial levels. That was very much part of the strategy to make certain that reform was not centrally directed. It also uh, was, there was ownership at the grassroots level. And they built constituencies for reform and compensated losers. Because reform has people win and people lose. You have to find a way to compensate losers. Otherwise, politically, they slow you down. So I'll just highlight a couple of points here. 
in terms of long-term vision, they had a clear idea that rather than do a big bang approach, by the way, I was, I was in Uzbekistan as, as a unit presented a long time ago, and there was a big bang going on in Russia. My friend uh, Jeff Sachs had convinced the Russian government to do that, and it was a disaster. Male mortality rates dropped 10 years, in a few years. 10 years went backwards. Uzbekistan, despite uh, the bank and others, and we kind of kept encouraging them, kept it stable. So had, Uzbekistan has the least drop of income of any of the socialist countries. So they basically said, we, the basic thinking was, let's grow out of the plan. The plan economy was X percentage of the, of the, of the national economy, and gradually we'll encourage the private sector and essentially grow out of the plan, but we will not destroy that track. So now you have something like 70% of the growth is private sector led, but the 30% remains uh, important. And the 30% is important because they started corporate, started making these companies corp corporations and profit driven and running as proper companies as opposed to centrally mandated groups going through political signals. So the economic signals, not just for the 70% were also being uh, transferred to the 30%. So in terms of capacity, I've tried to argue in the book that human development achievements of the Mao period provided the foundation and this big uh, incentive, which big experimentation we took place in and Zhejiang and other provinces uh, where uh, they opened it up to farmers and the, what they call the household responsibility system. Uh, because the assets were equal, farmers were equal, when the growth took place, everyone benefited. So if you go to Zhejiang province now and you fly over Zhejiang province, you'll be amazed. Every plot has a huge uh, mansion. So you say, why are the, all these mansions being built in which is uh, fields? Because these farmers got rich. And they started being, and these guys were so brilliant, they formed cooperatives into investment cooperatives, and they were the biggest investors in Abu Dhabi, by the way. Can you believe that? They became global in terms of investing. So you have to see how well they did these things. So uh, on the capacity side, let me just say a little bit about uh, uh, the bureaucracy and incentives for bureaucracy. So if you go around in China, and you meet the governors and the vice governors, they bore you silly by telling you all the economic data and how they're doing it and what they're doing and, and how, how, what you can do to help them. They're on top of what is happening in their, in their state. And there's a reason for that because they're judged. We helped uh, develop uh, uh, this uh, performance measurement systems for, for, for them. And previously it was growth rates. Then we added health and education and social development. So they knew that if, if they had any chance of moving up, they had to perform at that level. And uh, most uh, organizational thinkers would say that's a terrible idea to have outcomes determine your future as opposed to outputs, meaning something you are directly responsible for. But outcomes is what they were judged with. If your state was growing fast, you moved up as a, as a potential state leader. And then if the state was lagging, they will bring tested leaders from other, other states to spend three years 
in the lagging state and get it moving again. The Chinese civil service is among the most competitive system you can imagine. At, there's a, um, a, a very interesting age structure. So at a certain level, they start closing the numbers. So you have to compete to get to the next level. And then you compete again to the next level. So right to the minister level, your automatic retirement, if you're 55, you are director general, that's the end. If you're 60, a vice minister, if you're 65, it goes up to the vice premier level. So you have a system where if you want to move ahead, you have to perform. And this is something, frankly, uh, I would very much encourage Pakistan uh, uh, to look at because civil service reform, if you do it in a holistic way, it takes decades to show results. But if you want to change behavior, you shift the incentives today for promotions, boy, you'll get a very different outcome. So he, I had some, uh, in the book, I highlighted some uh, numbers, ministers, governors, mayors, uh, remarkable that between 82 to 84, three years, they changed 65, 65 to 70% of the people. Imagine that. Huge, huge, uh, 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 huge kind of... Um, so uh, Jeff Sachs did an interesting article about, about Chinese growth in the... Uh, I think in 2001, 2002, if I remember correctly, where they basically did all the analysis and they said, well, there's so many uh, factor imperfections in the Chinese economy. Uh, so if they only did that better, they could go faster, but already China was growing at 10% at that time. So, you know, uh, all that is just, uh, uh, I think Joe Stiglitz, who had done a lot of work with uh, jointly, he said it right. He said, you know, we have to unlearn what we've been taught at university. The problem of getting taught as in your classical thinking is that it sticks in your mind because it seems logical, but in reality, it doesn't work. And I like to those who are following the fund and the bank, uh, I am still quite prepared to know countries where, which have done better if they had followed their advice. The only country they show is Ghana. And Ghana received a lot of capital infusion. So I, I, I think there's a bit of an outlier in that way. But even then, Ghana was talking about six, seven percent growth rates. Uh, so policies, did not conform to the Western paradigm. They were very clear about sequencing policy. Uh, you know, my own uh, conclusion has been after a lot of work on this thing that uh, detailed policies may initially be of secondary importance because the more fundamental transformations matters more. You know, you may not get your policy mix right but when you're transforming a society, they will find answers themselves as they move forward because you are enhancing their capabilities. And now, this is what I said a few years ago, uh, as the institutional framework is refined, getting policy right become more important. You, you see what I'm trying to say. The big bang has to be uh, transformation driven, and then you fine tune it as you go along. Uh, I'll give you an example of um, the State Planning Commission. <laughs> The State Planning Commission uh, was very much like the Gosland approach, the uh, Soviet Union style. Huh? But <clears throat> they realized they could not manage the country or complexity of China. And they 
changed it to become a National Reform and Development Commission very consciously because they felt that at each stage of development, you need to reform. The reform is never, you do it now and you rest. It's a continuing exercise because challenges keep changing. So uh, I know that uh, population growth rate has been controversial, but there's a value, there's a plus and a minus to it. I'm happy to talk about it. Uh, I know also that there's been, um, uh, in the last decade at least, a uh, uh, rise in inequality in China, and there have been issues of um, rural urban gaps. Um, migrant workers have not been as protected in terms of uh, uh, rights, which is something we had worked on, and I think there may some uh, you know, I, I became, uh, we set up a, a, social, a social reform um, uh, uh, forum and I and the Minister of Labor were co-chairs of that. And what fascinated me is that once China takes a decision and after some while we convinced them that uh, pensions and social security is a right, not for different groups of people, they took it and they ran with it. So what uh, some of the later work I did with the Human Development Report shows that you can do these things at much lower level of income as is the case in many countries. Huh? Uh, so you have, there are some challenges about the poor and the fiscal burden is uneven in terms of uh, different levels. For instance, if you, Shanghai, Shanghai is like a, uh, you know, if you uh, take the Shanghai per capita incomes and levels, uh, it's ranks higher than Portugal. Hmm? But if you take Gansu, which is a poor thing, so you, there, there's an uh, imbalance in that sense. And uh, uh, if you look at the, uh, the fiscal burden, so per capita expenditure on, on children is very different uh, in the two provinces. And partly it's because Shanghai is already quite rich, so you can always float a bond and, and uh, get away with it. But Gansu cannot float bonds. No one would take it easily. So there are issues uh, which have to... Uh, be considered. <clears throat> Give you an idea about maternal mortality uh, mortality rates. In Shanghai, maternal mortality rate is 9.6 percent, higher than the U.S. By the way, huh? in Guizhou is 100. So still there there be these uh, large lags. Huh? Uh, migrant women represent only 10 percent of urban pregnancies, but two thirds of maternal mortality. So there are many things to be done. So would, it, would China keep on growing in the future? I, my answer is simple. Answer is yes. Uh, they have deliberately taken the decision to peg it at 6.5%, 7% now. Uh, why? Because many inefficiencies still need to be addressed. New institutions have to be created. You have to unify the rural and urban economies. They are thinking of um, uh, making 300 million people in the rural areas into um, urban islands, and that'll be the largest managed population transfer in history. In over 20 years, they plan to do that. And given the strong economic fundamentals as a, that have evolved, uh, and if the, this realignment works well, this may be only the beginning. And my sense is that uh, uh, whatever you say, uh, China is now moved into a very different story huh? of growth and development is found its rightful place in the world, world setup. And if you allow me, I'll just send, spend a minute each on three interesting programs. Um, many, 
I saw comments on this um, uh, interaction part, and I think Nadeem has done a great job in bringing so many people together. And, and people said, well, you know, China is so different. We can never learn from China because they work too hard. <laughs> they're, they're somehow Martians uh, sitting, <laughs> sitting in, on Earth. Um, so I frankly took a slightly different view and I saw what they were doing on poverty reduction. So I actually helped found the International Poverty Reduction Center, which is now um, a 20 story building in, in Beijing. And they now uh, interact with all over the world to show what China has done on poverty reduction. These are things which are eminently replicable. Huh? Um, the second thing I wanted to highlight was that we, you, you know, China it runs differently in that way that it's the party which is the thinking part of, of the system. The government is only the implementing partner. So when you deal with the minister in a department, he's not, he's not authorized to think differently. His authority is only to implement things. So if you want to change behavior or change policy, you have to talk to the party, but the party doesn't talk to foreigners. So it reminds me of the old uh, Ming dynasty forbidden city thing where the assistant to the assistant and the, finally the doorkeeper would receive the ambassador and take the paper all the way back to the, to the state councilor. So you have to remember that because so we decided to find a way to get to the party. And we set up, finally got through to them. This is a very interesting. And, and you know, I even encourage them to, to interact with Pakistan, those who've been, uh, I know the frustration building up in this website. Um, we tried very hard to bring Pakistan in, but Pakistan is very reluctant to be involved in many things. We sent over a four year period, 420 leaders overseas, not to study China, but to study how other countries had balanced growth with social development, with environments and so forth. And you know, I spent some time with them overseas as well. And I can tell you they worked hard at it. Our people, I hate to say this, if you're a minister in Pakistan, you feel you know everything. So you can only teach others. Whereas the Chinese have a different approach. They're constantly trying to learn things. And I think that was helpful to us. A, for us to access these people, which is very difficult in China, but also to have them understand what needs to be done. So they can, ultimately China will be for Chinese, you know, but at least they know global experience. And then the third and the final uh, program was fascinating for me. You know, we've been taught that agriculture development should be the responsibility of the Ministry of Agriculture. And then there's a training and, and a TNB system, they call it. Huh? You train and then you educate people and improve varieties and stuff. But the Ministry of Science and Technology came to see me. And, and first I, I hesitated to be honest because I didn't want to create problems with the government and things like that. And they said, why don't you partner with us? Because we have spare capacity among our scientists in universities. And we have farmers who want to do better and could do better. Can we not combine them somehow? so they can get the most advanced thinking on science and technology to improve uh, productivity in agriculture. Now remember ag in agriculture, China per hectare per acre is among the highest in the world productivity already. So this program, we did that, we joined it and over years, it became what they call a national program. We were dealing with as an experiment with 10 million farmers 
to give you the scale again. Huh? And the increase in yields went up from 10% to 40% depending on the, on the thing. Plus, when there was a snow, uh, unused snow thing in Sichuan province, they could learn from Northeast China how they protected crops. So they set up websites to talk to each other. They set up credit cards to get loans from the Agriculture Development Bank. And honestly, it opened my eyes that you can do these things better. So that has now become a national program. I mean, it's no longer a pilot. It's spread all over China. So it shows that uh, what is possible because they're very committed to once they take on something to actually making it happen. I will stop at this point and I'm sure a lot of people have questions and there are many who disagree profoundly with my perspective on things. I certainly hope so because otherwise there is no point of holding a webinar if everybody agrees. I often tell people if you're in agreement, go to the mosque. That's much better. But here, but is... even there, we have many sects in Islam. So, unfortunately, yeah, yes. Well, I think you've given us a very good rundown. I still have a number of questions. I'll take them up later. I think, uh, quite frankly, the most challenging thing that I seem to get from your talk and whatever I know of China, which is precious little, that somehow they've managed to create a mindset of learning and flexibility. And that is also within an authoritarian system, which kind of confuses the daylight out of us because most of us think that along the Hayekin line that the market is the best way to learn and uh, develop a flexible mindset, but the Chinese have developed that. Um, so let me, uh, let me turn to Shahid uh, Yusuf. Shahid, can you tell us why is it that the Soviet Union failed and China succeeded and all this acceleration of growth what is it that we can copy? I mean, this thing that, uh, this refrain that I hear in Pakistan, that we must copy the Chinese model. Is the Chinese model copyable? Can we copy it? Shahid, can you please come in? Okay, thank you. And uh, Khaled, wonderful to see you after so many years. Hi, guys. Uh, Assalamu alaikum. Nice, <laughs> nice. Uh, and uh, even though it's virtual, but I hope we'll, we'll be able to see each other in Are person. you based in uh, Washington? I am in Washington. Okay, I, so hopefully at some point we'll connect. Surely. And Nadim, thank you for inviting me to, to participate in the, the webinar. Camera. Let people see you. Okay. Uh, all right. So, um, Jai, first, you're looking good. How, how did you keep your hair black? I mean, I, 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 it's <laughs> impressive. We can do that offline, Khaled. Let's go. Go ahead, Jai. Uh, okay, so... Um, let me say that I fully uh, uh, agree with uh, Khaled with regard to China's accomplishments. They have been tremendous and they have been, I think, rightly written up about at, at considerable length. However, I would uh, disagree a little bit with Khaled in that everyone has been writing about China in a negative way. Mm. Um, I would say the international financial institutions, mine, his, and others uh, have been very bullish about China and have consistently tried to, uh, you know, play up uh, its accomplishments and try and reinforce whatever the Chinese are trying to do, trying to guide them in ways, whether they accept it or not, there has been a lot of effort in that direction. Uh, I'd like to sort of give you a more of a neoclassical view of why China has been so successful as a, as a, as a growth economy. Uh, 
Hmm. First, I'd like to I'd like to say that, you know, if you look at what China has been doing starting in the 1950s onwards, one important facet of the development was the focus on industrialization. From the very outset, this country has been systematically building up its industrial capability. Remember, it, it exploded a nuclear device in 1964 and a hydrogen bomb two years later. And much of that was done without the help of the Soviet Union. Okay. And if you look at the development since then, the manufacturing sector has consistently been the driver of growth in China. It was more than a third of the GDP uh, through, the, through the 80s, and it's still 27 to 28% of GDP now, amongst the highest in the world. So this is a really important facet of the development. It's manufacturing capability nurtured over, over a period of almost 70 years. The second thing I'd like to stress is, and Khaled mentioned that very clearly, uh, referred to that very clearly, is the reform and opening. The reform and opening of the economy, and in particular, the consistent movement towards a market system, and a market system where the private sector has been one of the key drivers. If you look at the share of the private sector in the Chinese economy, it's roughly two thirds now. And take out the private sector and the Chinese economy would definitely not have developed and it would not have developed without the, the progressive move, move towards a market system. Uh, I would also say that the state-owned enterprises have been an incubus on the Chinese economy as has been repeatedly pointed out. Its profitability, its productivity, its general lack of innovativeness has been clearly demonstrated and the fact that the state-owned enterprise sector is likely to be growing and becoming much more important uh, under Xi Jinping is a, is, a, is a cause for some considerable concern. It could be a break on the economy. Let me say what I think really started out this growth process. Following the reform, and as Khalid pointed out, the real focus on continual development and growth, I think that China followed this export-led growth strategy with great effectiveness. And it was, I think, really helped by the globalization process, which started in the 60s and by the 70s and 80s had got, gathered considerable momentum. China really benefited from this globalization process. And it benefited in many different ways. First, there was this question of openness of other economies to China's exports. Secondly, China attracted a very large volume of foreign direct investment and continues to attract a lot of investment even now. That helped it develop its and modernize its industrial sector. Secondly, that also led to a big transfer of ideas into China, transfer of technology of both the soft and the hard kind. That was absolutely critical to making China's industrial economy into a success story. Thirdly, China benefited from its uh, entry into the World Trade Organization. If you look at what happens to China's growth and exports prior to 2001 and post 2001, there's an enormous leap. So that really was a, a very important development. Fourth, China became integrated into global value chains, key global value chains and has become a, the most important industrial hub for many of these global value chains. 
absent such integration, that sort of growth could never have happened. Khalid pointed out they used exchange rate policy very effectively. This was a very aggressive exchange rate policy, similar to the one that was used first by Japan, then by Korea. So this combined with, with the foreign direct investment, with the opening of the global economy, enabled them to, to use exports as an important driver of their growth. Okay, so that, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story, and I think you've pointed out, is that there was a consistent effort to try and develop human capital. Uh, from right from the, you know, the 60s and 70s, there was an emphasis on education. This picked up steam after the 80s and 90s and China. So China benefited in two ways. One, it built up human capital. Two, it had a very elastic supply of labor. So the combination of labor and human capital, again, was, a, uh, was an important contributing factor. Let me look at the factual side. An authoritarian economy such as China, which is centrally planned and directed and has a party that controls virtually every facet of the economy, has been able to control consumption and mobilize resources like no other economy has been able to. If you think about it, uh, and you look at what are the factors that have contributed to China's growth, it's been capital, enormous investment of capital, starting with roughly about 36% of GDP in the 70s and 80s, and going all the way up to 44, 45% of GDP in the 90s and the 2000s. So this is the ability to mobilize resources, the ability to control consumption, particularly household consumption, made an enormous contribution. Uh, you talked about total factor productivity. If you look at the decomposition, uh, total factor productivity was a, contributed between a third and more percent of GDP growth in the 1978-87 period and somewhat less in the 98-97 period. So all the way till about 2007, total factor productivity, which I see as a combination of efficiency because of marketization, uh, pro productivity gains because of technology transfer, productivity gains because of foreign direct investment, all of these things contributed to the uh, uh, growth of the economy. It wasn't just capital, but capital has had a very large role. And if you come closer to the present, the ability to invest close to 40% of GDP, the highest in the world, now contributes almost 85 to 90% of China's growth. So if you want uh, uh, you know, to, to say, what's the real secret? One, it's capital, the ability to invest huge amounts of capital through the control of the economy. Two, it's the private sector and the market economy, the efficiency of the private sector and the market economy. That's been a critical factor. Three, it's been the openness of the economy and the ability to trade and to gather and harvest ideas from all over the world, including by sending hundreds of thousands of Chinese overseas to be trained who come back and bring their ideas back with them. This openness has been absolutely vital. And uh, uh, fourthly, I would say, starting in the late 1990s, China has been investing massively in research and development. 
without that research and development effort, the current assimilation of knowledge from anywhere else, the ability to innovate would have been seemingly inconceivable. So this capacity to, to trade, to open the economy, to build a competitive market environment, all of these things I think have played a vital role in China's development. Now, if we come closer to the present, I see each of these things running into headwinds. I see a much more authoritarian uh, China rearing its head again. I see the party control becoming far more constrictive. I see the party control now permeating every private sector enterprise of any consequence. I see the private sector, the uh, party's role becoming really a dampener on the innovativeness and growth of the economy. So I think, whereas at through the 2007 or 2008, you had China moving in one direction, but clearly China is moving in a somewhat different direction now. And finally, uh, let me say this about the desire to learn. As you know, I have worked on China since the 80s. And I have seen that I, I have firsthand experience of the desire to learn and absorb ideas from outside. I, as I repeat, this has been vital to their development. But if I come closer to the present, I see a certain hubris creeping in. China now feels they know everything. They feel they have a model. I don't know what the model like, is. Like, like the Americans, huh? Yeah, okay, but I don't see a Chinese <laughs> model. And I don't see an authoritarian party as a way forward for any country. And, and I think today, when you go to China, this desire to learn, this sense of openness, this you know, willingness to absorb ideas from outside has greatly diminished. China now feels they are in the lead. They are producing the most patents in the world. They have the most scientific papers. They have the fastest growing or one of the fastest growing economies. They've bounced out of the pandemic. They don't want to learn from anybody. They think they have something to tell everybody. And I think that is a perhaps an unfortunate development. Thank you. Uh, can I just make a couple of quick comments? Sure. Um, Shai, thank you for the neoclassical perspective, although you kept straying into political economy considerations as well. Huh? Uh, but let me just highlight a few things. Uh, growth rates did not accelerate after WTO accession. Huh? They were already high before that. Uh, human capital, human capital uh, exports is, did. Yeah, exports is different. I'm talking about growth as a, as a GDP. Uh, look at here, human capital. Human capital, I know that there's a term which is used a lot in the literature, but to me, capabilities explains much more the agency aspect of that. Huh? And then, you know, you have to take a political economy perspective. You have to see why did China did better than others? when uh, others were also doing something similar. And the fundamental issue really is that the elites, the people running China, felt that they had to develop, <laughs> otherwise they would lose their dominant position. And even in the, in the 70s and 80s, China did not have much money. It wasn't, a, they, they, the diaspora played a very large role in it. So I think one has to take a, um, a, a step back. I mean, even uh, your former chief economist, Justin, has now become a great fan of uh, structural economics and uh, industrial policy issues. Someone has to exercise a policy matter. Marketization is different from letting markets run everything. And I'll give you a very specific example of how China actually created new markets. Wine. There was no demand for wine. And there was 
no production of wine. So China, the local uh, governments actually started buying 10-year uh, uh, agreements with fledgling local producers to buy their wine and therefore gave them the opportunity to enter the market. And now China is a very large producer of wine. So I think that <clears throat> when you put it in a sim simple framework, it, it loses the thrust you need in order to understand what is transportable. Okay, great. We'll come to, we'll, we'll have more discussion just now. Let me bring in the third speaker, um, Saeed Afridi. Saeed, <clears throat> so far what I've heard is very good. I appreciate it, etc. But none of it is really copyable. So what do we do in Pakistan where one ministry does not coordinate with another? There's no central party. We heard two days ago, we had a webinar and um, uh, we learned that, you know, uh, when um, certain ministries were called to a meeting, nobody turned up. We also learned that they don't read each other's work. So Saeed, is there anything that China can teach us? Or you think this was just a one-off event that doesn't teach much to humanity? I think, I think it's about looking at the whole process from, in terms of a systemic view. One of the things that is less talked about when it comes to China is how the system from the very beginning has been very competitive. It's not just in terms of the economic sphere, but also in the political sphere. It's been very competitive. It is a one party system, yes. However, competition, not just of ideas, but even in terms of the level of reform has been very strong. It's been less about let's do this and everybody implement it and more about those guys are doing something that's allowing them to become more competitive than us. We must either adopt it or adapt it to what our needs are. And this has been very important in the development of China. It's been an evolutionary process. It hasn't been one in sort of how the, the Washington consensus sort of does is you you know, take this step, this one's ticked, then you go on to the next one, and the next one, the sequencing of reforms that uh, Khalid Saab talks about in his book, it has been very important. Now, specifically to your question about how do we learn from this in an environment where we have very entrenched camps? Incentives. The incentive mechanism in China has been one of the leading providers of reform. The incentive for every, every stage or every strata within the government, they have five sort of strata, you go into it in your book as well, where you've got the local governments and, and going all the way up towards the state government. The level of incentive that each and every one of those layers has has been a deciding factor because the moment one local government starts performing better than the other one, it creates a focus on the one that's not performing as well. So everybody else looks at it and especially the NDRC looks at it and says, okay, why is it that this particular province or this particular city is doing better when an equivalent in another city in equivalent with equivalent resources isn't doing as well. 
And that comparative leads to some sort of change, whether it's in the leadership of that city that's not doing well, or the ministry that isn't doing well, or that specific area of um, its industrial function that's not doing well. And that has been a very important aspect of China's progress. And this is something that countries like Pakistan can learn from. In Pakistan, unfortunately, there's a there's an acceptance of everything has to fit into a grand scheme of things. You see, we like master plans, we like uh, rigidity, we like concepts, we like saying this is how X, Y, and Z is explained, and this is the route that we will follow. Markets have to be controlled and are controlled in this particular way and then allowed to exercise or, or work freely in this particular way. That rigidity is absent in China. So if you go through um, Khalid Saab's book where he talks about how these reforms came about, for example, the TVEs, these are not, these are not um, reforms that came from the central government. As one of the things that he he points out um, a couple of times in the book is how nobody, nobody anticipated how the TVEs came about. Nobody realized how successful it would be. And even when it was being implemented by other regions, there was still a question of, is this something that should go national? However, when it, once it became clear that this is a successful policy, then it became, and it was adaptable and scalable, then it was embraced. The idea that this is not something that we had prescribed, therefore we will stop it, never came into question. And this is where that China's willingness to learn was very important, not just from the outside world, which played a big role. Okay, the, the UN and the UNTP played a big role in terms of the transfer of knowledge but the emphasis on accepting things that work and adapting them and scaling them up is very important in the Chinese sort of story of change. And this is something that has been absent in other transitions. For example, you get that in, uh, especially in Eastern and Central Europe, adaptability has not been a driving force they've been trying to conform to prescription so much that when, it, when they get it wrong, they don't turn back and say, okay, we've got this wrong. Let's try and see where the errors were. It's been almost in every single case, it's been, we've got this wrong. We didn't implement it properly. The frame, the plan is consistent, it's fine. It should have worked. If it hasn't worked, it's because of implementation. The relationship between the plan and the society itself, which Khalid uh, goes into in terms of social capital, that aspect of it has been absent in Central and in Eastern Europe. And Poland was a great example of this, where the idea that markets, that markets had to be introduced under a democratic system that both of these things could not be done in conjunction, that the sequencing of the re market reforms had to be after the sequence of political reforms because politi 
democratization was easier and reformation of the economy was harder. Therefore, we go down this way. That aspect is completely missing in China. In China, the, the relationship between subsets of reform is not so rigid. They look at what works. If it works, okay, then the next question is, this has worked in say one particular area. Is it something that can be transportable? If it is, is it scalable? In order to make it scalable, do we need to adapt it? And all of this is being done by the bureaucracy, whether it's the party bureaucracy or the provincial bureaucracy, it's the bureaucracy that's doing this. And that is another aspect that's missing in so many other countries where the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy is neither proactive in most countries and nor is it willing to adapt. And that aspect is very important in China and missing in countries like Pakistan, where the bureaucracy is more willing to um, stamp out anything that doesn't follow a prescribed plan, rather than look at whether or not it works. And if it does work, should we then adapt it? And this is where incentives come in. Uh, one of the key aspects uh, of China's reform has been incentives. The way the bureaucracy, the way the local leadership not only owns reform, but has managed to make sure that reform, the incentives encourage reform. That is a key aspect. And that, that is one of the deciding factors for why China, Chinese provinces are willing to adapt policies that have worked in another province. And in many cases, then you have a little bit of a tussle between the province and the central government where if that province isn't in a particular region or isn't in a particular bracket, it then wants to argue its case to be allowed either by an exception or in changed into a particular category so that they can do this. And this is, uh, going back to Nadeem Ulaq Saab's question, this is the key thing. If your bureaucracy is not competitive, if the incentives do not encourage your bureaucracy to implement ideas that work, then you will end up with situations where you'll have a meeting and half the people not turn up because whether or not they progress in their career is not linked to whether or not they perform in their job. And that's very important. So that aspect of it is systemically built into the Chinese reform system. And one of the things Shaitsa was saying about the party now becoming um, sort of the brick wall to which everything is now moving towards, the party is getting more involved in provinces, more involved in the private sector. So the question now that's being raised within the party and a lot of people who interact, not so much party members, but uh, bureaucracy that interact with the outside world, they say maybe the time has now come for the reform process to go into the party's politics because the party's incentive mechanisms are now um, to a great extent left behind. China has moved forward, the party hasn't. 
So the party must now reform itself in order to stay in pace with China. So a lot of this, uh, this hubris aspect that people talk about has a lot to do with the fact that now the people who are adapting the policy can see that the people who are thinking about the vision are being left behind. So they've got to catch up now. And that part of the reform has begun. It's under Xi Jinping, one of the things that is clear is that the party is trying to assert itself in areas that the party had actually taken a step back from. But unlike what people write about, especially Financial Times tends to tend to like this particular aspect and always points out that the party has steamrolled or bulldozed some aspect or the other. Unlike a lot of that narrative, what's actually happening in China is that the provinces are pushing back. They are pushing back because the more the party interferes in the private sector, the less gain in revenue. And that's the, that's the aspect. The incentives that the provinces have to grow are now clashing with the incentives that the party has for career progression. So this is a reform process that in, has been a little overdue, but it is now in progress. So I hope that sort of goes into um, explaining why we're finding that little bit of tussle, that little tension between uh, one aspect of the reforms and the other aspect, the, the economic aspect and the industrial aspect, as opposed to the political one. Uh, one thing that, uh, one thing about uh, Khalisa's book that I tend to quote a lot, especially with when dealing with um, bureaucrats from China, is that the emphasis has always been in China, the emphasis has always been on a competitive edge. Once an area, a region, a province, or even a specific company gets that competitive edge, the, the time frame they have in order to create a name for themselves is very short. Because of the nature of the Chinese reforms, the maximum amount of time they tend to have is about two or three years before the other provinces try to catch up. They will take that time to adapt their own policy and get that competitive edge to, or not get it, but at least reduce the impact of that competitive edge. And what that tends to do is turn bureaucrats into less into people who are implementing things and more into people who are thinking about how they can better implement things compared to what they've done before. And this aspect has a lot to do with China's productivity, especially region-wise. So this, this willingness to catch up with anybody who's going ahead or getting ahead of, them, of a, that particular area or that particular province, that willingness is also very important and it gets written less about, but it, it, it forms the backbone of why these reforms have been very successful over a period of time, even though they've gone through different stages with sort of um, all the way from Deng, Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping. With every stage, 
where the emphasis, the vision has changed or has been adapted at the top, at the lowest level of government, the way they have then taken it up and run with it and tried to improve it, that has, that has had a very important effect on the feedback loop that exists between those who are coming up with the visions of where China should be heading and those who are actually doing the work at the bottom and implementing the reforms and the ideas. This feedback loop has been very important and that's, that tends to be missing in a lot of other countries that go into reforms. Um, one, of the, one of the important aspects of this has been an unwillingness to let anybody else apart from themselves be in control. They do not like a situation where somebody comes up and says, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will do better. We will lead you. When it comes to that situation, the, the response from the Chinese bureaucracy tends to be, explain what it is that you're saying, and then we will see if we want to do this. And it usually comes out as a different policy or a tweaked policy. And this aspect is missing in many countries. Most countries uh, you go to, including Pakistan, prescription tends to work a lot better than localized thinking. Running with a policy, adapting it, reforming it as you implement it is something that is alien to a lot of bureaucracies, especially post-colonial bureaucracies. And Pakistan suffers from that. So I hope that sort of lengthy answer covers it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, um, uh, Said. Um, look, folks, now I'll turn to the floor. Uh, please note the questions, and then I'll come back to the panel, and the panel can say, you know, sum up and say whatever they like. Um, before I go to the floor, let me just say that from all that I've learned from you guys, it seems to me that the best explanation was what Khalid said earlier on, that Amao preceded a Deng. Mao Zedong smashed Chinese culture. Mao Zedong created a totally different work ethic. In fact, created a martial race and uh, a disciplined martial race. I don't think human capital means more than discipline and martial. I think even though I studied with Gary Becker, I think we, the neoclassical economy makes too much of degrees. The main thing is having the work culture, which we in Pakistan just don't have. We still don't have. So Mazitung created a work culture, a disciplined force, and therefore Shahid is right. That disciplined force could extract capital and do whatever it likes. I mean, when China delivers a project, it delivers in a year. Shahid, when we deliver a project, you know, I was the head of the planning commission for a while. It took us 12 or 15 years to make Neelam Jalem, although it was supposed to be for three years. Because 10 years to make Islamabad airport, where Chinese have probably made 100 airports in a year, where we took us 10 years to make a Chinese uh, Islamabad airport. And that too, at almost 10 times the cost that was originally envisaged. It took us seven years or eight years to make raise mangla, just a raising of a wall. And in that, we started off at 18 billion rupees and we ended up with 150 billion rupees. So, you know, there's a huge issue here. Do we have that martial culture? 
or do we not? Do we have the spoiled behavior? But I'll leave that as a question to you guys, because our people are very spoiled. Even if I tell, even in a small organization like PAD, if I tell somebody to do this, they thumb their nose at me and say, I don't want to do it. And I can't, can't do a damn thing about them. Right? <coughs> do that. Everybody does that. Everybody's an autopilot. Nobody cares. You saw what happened in Ogra. You saw what happened in Nepra. You saw what happened in everywhere. Nobody seems to follow any discipline. And uh, the only thing that matters is when the prime minister sends them to NAP, that's all that matters. And NAP then is an inefficient organization. So what do we do? So anyway, bear that in mind when you come to answering. Let's go to the questions. Engineer Jabbar Saab. Engineer Jabbar Saab is a well-known Pakistani engineer, industrialist, etc. Engineer Saab, Jabbar Saab, batayye. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Saab. Uh, I think uh, it was very interesting to sort of take stock of the disagreements with the with Dr. Khalid. Mm -hmm. And it was also interesting mm -hmm. to take a stock of the bureaucracy and how it is working in the China. And we also are sort of hearing about the differences in promises about the you know elevated provinces and about the you know uh, decaying province. Anyway, let me just uh, uh, recall whatever I have been hearing. Mm. First thing, I think uh, I would agree with Dr. Khalid that uh, engineers were always in the front-running economy of the China, and probably I think in the policy making they had almost more than ninety percent share. And I can fairly recall that HMC in Pakistan was uh, constructed, the one who was over here became later president of uh, China. The concept of engineers uh, being at the policy head was very simple because uh, I myself being a power system engineer, we believe in uh, efficiency of the machines and we believe in continued increase in the efficiency index. And we also believe that the human development should be commensurate uh, with the market requirements of the job. And we also believe that uh, the jobs must be developed or human capital must be developed in accordance with the spacing wherever it is available. And uh, I think uh, one, one thing more important, uh, I would just think, and uh, maybe I think we should agree to that, the development of China would, uh, if almost not 100%, but would be attributed by the disciplinary you see, workforce, which was always uh, made to move towards the area where they would require such a disciplinary workforce. I was in Soviet Union when I was young, so I could see that the people were forced to go into the electrical site where they needed. The people were forced to go in the construction site where there was a projected demand in the coming years. So this way, the human capital was being developed and they were under the discipline to also obey where they have to work. And probably that was also the root cause of Soviet Union, which also was an empire, you see. And China also, under these uh, rules, also developed. And another thing, uh, uh, Mr. Dr. Khalid and other speaker was talking about WTO. I was also one of the speaker. And in the panel of WTO, when the China was joining accession of China to WTO. So that was the panel organized by the WTO itself. And under the UNDP, I was also a speaker. So I think... Uh, I would hear little with some little difference that after WTO, China really accelerated fast because it's permeated into the global system and it uh, got the chances to sort of develop its uh, low-tech and M-tech products into the developed countries where the human value 
in terms of its uh, payments and all that was becoming higher. So they went uh, into the precision technology and other technologies. Then after W, and I fairly remember that I was uh, so happy to see that China is joining WTO. But when China joined WTO, we thought it would uh, lend a leadership to the developing country, but it did not. It silently worked in, it never got engaged into disputes, never got engaged into anything, which I would say the third world was engaged in, uh, which I would say the Americans were engaged in, or anyway, I was uh, continuously going in all the, you see, uh, uh, WTO annuals and other, you know, forums, but I never saw that China was ever heard to be coming into any NGO to support uh, anything else, but it's on cause of keep developing without any political uh, engagements or be, be, uh, without being recognized or identified for any political lending support to the developing countries. Now, one thing more, I remember that World Bank and IMF, I mean, say a decade back, Dr. Khalid would be here to support me, was advising China that don't just grow through export-led growth. Grow by your own domestic consumption. And that would be the thing which will not disrupt the economies of uh, developing countries, which would also keep spacing for the employment in the developing countries where the World Bank itself, two decades back and more, I think you, you would know better than me that it was telling that the import substitution is the best way for the survival and human developing of the uh, developing countries. And another thing which uh, uh, we forget is that China is, was uh, infringing, up, infringing upon IPRs. China was a classic model of piracy. China is a classic model of copying. And I think uh, if uh, I can fairly remember that the first train came from Japan, Japan and never the second train came. So this China, actually, uh, development of China, one can see also that there was an infringement so slowly, so calmly, without uh, raising any dispute or engaging in with the uh, sort of uh, developing countries and WTO that gave China a privilege of slowly and slowly, you see, infringing upon all these things. And now only today, US is recognizing that by just uh, sanctioning some of the companies, you see. Now, another thing uh, about lastly, which would be lastly, I would like to say is that okay, experience of Pakistan, let's say the okay imbalances, China grows, develops trillions of dollars, trillions of uh, GDP and all that. But then wherever it is moving with investment, wherever it would sort of uh, try to manifest the role of being French, it should be in real sense. I've been always complaining in Pakistan, okay, look, the Soviet model in 1974, five and uh, in uh, sort of 85, bringing up the Pakistan steel mill was that I remember I was in the first batch of Pakistan steel mill during 73, 74, was a very simple one. Train the people, educate the people before the plant start production or before the plant goes into the final stages of construction. So people were ready, only few Soviets were there, they were working. And this way they developed our human resource and human resource was so much capable that it was running the industry in terms of capital repairs, if not first category, then at least in the second category. Now China is coming to the Chinese model, you see. Chinese have exported power plants, very expensive in terms of capex values of region, in terms of capex value of globe. Okay, uh, now I'm coming to the other part. You know, in Pakistan, we have a system wherein 
we do not allow import of uh, goods at concessionary rate or with exemption which are being produced locally but chinese uh, force pakistan to sort of issue the custom general order to issue legislative amendments in the custom act that regardless of anything which is being locally produced the chinese will be exempted and then on the human development side you when the your power plants were being developed i remember in punjab people made a strike that they don't employ us and chinese had a very simple reason that they are not the type of labor they are not the type of technician who can go in terms of our modeling of construction so i would say let's say that if this is the model which is uh, uh, having any spill over effect i don't see anything except that china is uh, improving its own economy at the cost of uh, our depreciation of the economy so that is also not fair but uh, let me conclude by saying that i think i personally believe that uh, the only place where i find that it is the most uh, sort of explainable reason for their development was the discipline of human capital discipline discipline in terms of their training discipline in terms of who should be and what why in pakistan we don't have now finally if you allow me doctor i will talk about the bureaucracy of pakistan we have been holding webinars with your assistance and i think we have talked a lot in pakistan the one who's atheist he becomes a secretary of ministry of religious affairs because he comes from a certain group the one who never never was involved in you know <clears throat> games even never played hockey never played cricket never played anything but he becomes also secretary of sports mm-hmm. and the one who was just uh, i mean say buying the tear gas shells in the interior ministry the next day he becomes secretary of commerce so mm-hmm. i must say this type of a bureaucracy in pakistan what to compare thanks to the speaker i must say he just pointed out certain you know expectations uh, which maybe we should borrow from him but i think you know better than me and we had a very extensive webinars on this issue so yes in pakistan i think if we are considering what to borrow first of all we have to put our system in place mm-hmm. can we have a professional bureaucracy i fairly remember in pakistan only once upon a time mr zulfakar ali bhutto he introduced a lateral entry inductions whereby the professional people even dr wakar masood is a product of that lateral entry so i mean so he was the one who introduced this i think doctor uh, probably i think uh, our model if it has to develop i mean say in terms of the uh, chinese bureaucracy i don't know we should hold a webinar let's see whether that system we can sort of influence uh, on government of pakistan on the cabinet or on the prime minister okay, it would uh, lend us some support in development or not so let us have this discussion so right. thank you very much uh, for really uh, giving me time to speak about it but the chinese uh, spill over of any improvement in our, our economy i totally call it exclusive it will never because under in the custom schedule act 5 1969 custom act it is written that all the power projects would be brought in pakistan without any regard to the status of its locally being manufactured chimniya chadre yahan pe har qisam ki low tech cheeze everything is being imported ex- under exemption from china so how you can develop uh, your uh, economy it's uh, someone from uh, your side also one speaker said that the chinese development is more or less coming from the accelerated uh, industrial development yes i believe but then how we can develop if we don't have even share of 16 to 17% let me give you an example 
when the first project was coming, I was party to that. We were just checking how much could be the local component in the lower tax side, in the lower tax side. And there was 37%. But you know what happened? The Ministry of uh, uh, Energy wrote that, no, there'll be no component which is required to be, uh, uh, to be uh, manufactured locally with the Chinese import. Everything will come from China. So this how we can develop. Uh, we are talking about Chinese, how they fast grew. They grew in a very close system. Only after that. Not their yeah. fault. It's our fault. It's not their fault. That's yeah. how I fairly but agree with you. It is our fault. What you have said is absolutely correct, and I'm very glad it's a vindication of neoclassical economics. Everybody's out for himself. So China is rightly out for itself. Now, Pakistan, if Pakistan does not have even um, understanding of what its interests are, if Pakistan does not have even an understanding of where we should go, then quite frankly, we should blame our government. And our government has not constructed for us. This is where the Mao effect comes in that we got our independence too easily. We were given our independence. We never fought for our independence. And therefore, we maintained Lord Macaulay. We live with Lord Macaulay. Lord Macaulay's system is there. But the Chinese went through a major revolution, disrupted everything, and now they have a different thing. So anyway, let me go on. Zia Bande. Let me sensitize your speakers. You see, very recently, I mean, say in the year 2020, I mean, say the senators wanted to know what are the development uh, metrics and the agreement in terms of Gwadar with China? And, you know, came the Secretary Maritime and Communication. They said, this is the document, but it is secret and we cannot share. So one senator stood up. They, Look, I'm a senator. I represent the people and you have the copy and I should not have a copy even to look at. He said, no, it is a secret document. So that is the way I mean, say our development goes. We cannot really learn from what is over there in the book. At least to you convey to us some teaching. Thank you, Dr. very much. Thank, Thank you very much. Bande of PID. Okay. Okay, Thank you, Dr. Sab. And uh, I really appreciate all the able speaker. And I really learn uh, things from them. My own Chinese experience is about a year stay there in China. I have established my company, worked there, and came back to Pakistan. I have a few questions with Khalid Saab. And uh, Khalid Saab, I just want to understand this hukou system, which prevails in China. I need to understand that what role the hukou system has basically played by reducing the labor cost, which contributed for Chinese to become competitive. Okay. One question is this. Second is this. What is the role of the central government in appointing the top leadership? You know that Chinese have 23 provinces. They have municipalities, they have autonomous regions, and they have that dual system also. Dual system means that you have a party secretary who is at the top, and then you have a mayor or the governor who is working below it. So what is the incentive? It means that the party is controlling the whole country with their top leadership. And that top leadership of the province or of the city is not coming from the city or the province. They're mostly appointed from outside who are there and basically ruling that city on behalf of the central government. Third, about the level of social liberties in China. You know that uh, Chinese have a very open society. It means that uh, homosexuality is legal, same-sex marriage is legal. So it means the social liberties are there, the economic liberties are there. Then it is also not true that there is no protest. Chinese have a lot of protests. I mean to say they're local level protest. 
mostly those protests are pertaining to some land acquisition at the rural side or some rights at the city level urban side also so it means that chinese have not totally closed the lid they are getting the steam out also now with all these things in place do you think that there is any space left in china for political mobilization against the communist party who seems to be giving them the enough space also to grow and to satisfy their inner and material demands also these are the three questions thank you sir shahid mahmood sir of pid bataiye assalam alaikum shahid mahmood pid research hello thank you dr nadi and uh, thank you for all the panelists that was very enlightening just get closer to the mic speak a little louder can you hear me we can hear you well now go ahead okay okay uh, thank you to all the panelists uh, that was a very enlightening uh, uh, presentations and enlightening talk so i have two brief questions uh, regarding what you said the first uh, something that dr nadeem mentioned about the work ethic and uh, let's be honest pakistan is overall if you look at it it's a pathetic work ethic but that's a uh, Uh, specifically khalid saab and then uh, uh, said afridi saab mentioned something about the work ethic and it's pretty strong in china and i i have observed it myself looking at them working so my question uh, my query is how do you do that in pakistan do you drill them drill that into pakistanis do you whip that into their uh, psyche or would it be a gradual transformation uh, how would how can what is the way to go about it to ch- t- change this thing now my second question and it's an important thing that you all of you mentioned uh, was about the strong local level uh, leadership and how it works in china's favor the uh, how it works in favor of economic growth in pakistan uh, and you uh, you know it better than i do and we've talked about it too we don't have a, lo- a good local government system Uh, the people are not just interested the federal or the provincial government they are ju- they just don't seem interested in but my question is uh, it's important that you mentioned the capabilities aspect even if you have a local government in pakistan do you see in terms of because capabilities are nothing to talk about even if we do have a local government in pakistan and a uh, good system that people or the federal and the provincial government allow to operate in the absence of good capabilities in the absence of a good working ethic or learning abilities would that be able to deliver results like it did in china thank you thank you ji uh noor hussain saab you've been asking some questions boliye noor hussain ji even though they had a language barrier in terms of understanding english but they were still trying to improve themselves and trying to 
um, stay abreast with the world. So uh, I've been studying uh, CPEC. And my simple question is that what are the bearings of over on our economy in terms of catching up with the Chinese? Thank you. Okay, good folks, we've got a large number of questions. I'll turn back to the panel now. Um, um, Khalid, would you like to go first? Yeah, so what I would uh, do is to respond, try to respond to the questions as best as I can. Okay. And then perhaps very quickly um, pick up four or five points for what Nadim was asking, what is applicable to Pakistan? Huh? Mm -hmm. So um, the first question was about, it wasn't a question about WTO, you know, my, uh, Good friend, one of my closest friends in China is Long Long Tu, who was the lead uh, WTO negotiator. And what he said to me was interesting. He said uh, that um, the, they did the WTO more for the internal issues than for external issues. Why? Because there was a lot of inefficiency and a lot of uh, vested interests internally from st state companies to local governments. And WTO allowed them to level the playing field internally. So very interesting comment which he made. Huh? Uh, I then get a question, a bunch of questions on the hukus. The hukus is a, is a framework which allows uh, labor to come into urban areas, but it doesn't give them full rights in terms of living in that uh, city. And that a little carefully because not many of us, I certainly don't know about this. Okay, huku, H-O-U-K-O-U, huku is a system. So you are a resident of your own city and you entitle health and education uh, benefits. Mm -hmm. But if you come as a migrant into that city, you do not automatically have right to education and health. So that's, and that has been a source of contention between us and the Chinese government for a while, because it means that if you bring your kids along as a migrant labor to the city, they cannot go to school easily. And I think uh, the Chinese have now changed the policy and they're committed to now, you know, to merging that whole system into one system. It's happening, but slowly. And of course, it kept the labor costs down. I mean, that's, that's the obvious uh, point. Huh? Uh, central government was um, uh, who appoints whom? Uh, you know, the, the party is the real uh, instrument and they have a ministry of the party. It's called Junzubo, the Central Organization Department. Uh, and they do the appointments of the top leaders, a vice minister and above. And there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, training for each level of government. They are forced to go for a one month long training every year. Can you believe that? And there's a very intensive exercise. So they appoint the governors, vice governors. And I said, the performance measurement system is such that if your province does well, you move up. If it does not do well, you do not move. And you move sideways or even you go down. So there's a very competitive system at that level. And that really forces governors and vice governors to work all the time because for their future is determined by that. And I'll come back to that point later. Uh, there was also a question of social liberties. You know, uh, economic, social. Uh, when I was in China in, uh, in 2004 or five, I can't remember the exact year, suddenly we started getting protests in front of the UN office. There were small groups. But the Chinese office actually keeps a record of all the protests in the country. And there are typically three to four million Chinese who are protesting against pension, not getting, uh, being badly treated by local uh, uh, governments, things like that. So they deliberately allow that to happen in order to manage, uh, as, as someone said, uh, 
letting of steam. Uh, but you know, Deng Xiaoping was also uh, very uh, clever. He said to China, which China is no longer following, he said, don't go all the way in the front, stay in the middle. So in terms of foreign policy, be careful. In terms of liberties, do it slowly. So, but you know, when you have educated people and very modern in their thinking, if you go to Beijing now, it's more modern than uh, Tokyo ever, ever was. So social liberties, economic liberties, protests are happening, happening rapidly. But I, I take uh, the point Shahid Yusuf made about uh, uh, Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is different in terms of what happened in the past, and I can say more on that. Uh, is there space for political mobilization? One of my older friends is the eldest son of Hu Yabang. Hu Yabang was the party leader after Mao, and he was a party leader for eight years. And his death led to the Tiananmen Square incident because he was well regarded and he was seen as Mr. Democracy. His, his push was to democratize uh, the Communist Party. And uh, Xi Jinping and Hu Xintao came out of that uh, whole tradition of the Youth League, which allowed them to think. So his eldest son is a person called Hu Deping. And Hu Deping tried very hard in the beginning period to convince Xi Jinping to also open up the party. I think this will happen, not now, maybe not later, but in the end, when people get educated, you're on the wrong side of history to keep pulling them back. That's my view anyhow. Uh, there was also a comment by, I think, Shahid from Pai, who said, work ethic, how to make people work harder. I, I must go back to what I said earlier. It's all about incentives. Human beings are amazing. I mean, the Chinese were seen as lazy, disorganized, uh, prone to um, having a good time. And then they transform because there's a huge amount of energy which is driven by incentives on doing better. And in the end, uh, there was a comment uh, by uh, someone who's at Cambridge, which is my alma mater, by the way, um, how CPAC is a catch up with uh, China. You know, <clears throat> I've been very much involved in CPAC. There's an international advisory board. And I'm also on the board of that uh, whole process. And uh, I, it was, to me, it's fascinating how they look at these things. Uh, but even that the Chinese thinking on CPAC is evolving. They're now pushing for infrastructure as sustainable infrastructure. They're now willing to accept public-private partnerships. They're now willing to accept win-win solutions, meaning that not only is good for China, but it should also good for the host country. The problem in, in Pakistan is what, uh, uh, Nadim said, we need to know what we want. And you know, when the, I, I try to argue with the people in Pakistan that look, you should not negotiate easily with the Chinese. The Chinese are very well prepared when they negotiate. You have to prepare yourself also. You should never accept uh, giving up zero tariff uh, uh, trade. That's the way to destroy your local industry. And that's what happened. And I remember uh, talking to the various leaders in Pakistan at that time. But there was such a political move to get the Chinese on their side and the Chinese took advantage. But I don't fault them. The fault lies with us much more. I'll just conclude by highlighting uh, the charge which Nadine gave us in the beginning. How is it that, how can we take lessons for Pakistan? First, <clears throat> we have to have a long-term shared commitment to reform and change in Pakistan. And you know, Nadim knows that we are trying to set up a high-level event at the UN. 
Uh, and the whole idea behind that was exactly that, that let us bring the government and the political parties and let's agree on the four or five things we can do as a collective leadership in Pakistan. Health, education, universal kind of stuff, which will transform Pakistan quite dramatically. <clears throat> the second thing is incentive, and since uh, Shahid Afridi elaborated on that, I don't need to say more on that, but you know, you, unless you build in incentives to the bureaucracy, it will not work. You know, I know Ishrat and others are doing a lot of work on reforming the civil service, but even if all those reforms go through, it'd be another decade or two decades before you see the result. You can change the behavior now by putting in incentives. Suppose today you have uh, deputy commissioners, commissioners being judged by how well their Zilla or, or Tassil is moving. It'll be a revolution. They will hate it, by the way. They will, they will not like it because no one wants to be held accountable uh, on performance. But you have to find a way to break that thing through. You have to re-engineer bureaucratic behavior because bureaucracy has a large role to play in development. Government has a large role. I mean, as the COVID thing pointed out, and I think Mauro Cuomo said it best, they found that government is essential to survival. We have to find a responsive government which is essential to kickstart and engineer and move development forward. I'll give a couple of very quick uh, things. And, um, monetary policy. You know that the general thing about monetary policy is that keep the inflation at a certain level and manage their supply of money. But actually China didn't follow that. China had started by what is the growth rate we need to achieve and what is the labor em employment we have to manage. And then you manage it. There's a reason why China did not go for open capital markets. Pakistan leapt into it with all the consequences it has. And I'm sure that will get shy. You are very excited about that. Capital market is a bad idea for developing countries, period. Even when uh, Greece tried to get out of the, the bind they had, there was a lot of debate about capital markets issues. And in the end, social policy has to really go up much higher. You know, uh, Mahbub used to make this comment about that budgets are balanced on the backs of people fundamentally, because that's what the bank thinking is and the fund thinking is reduce expenditure. Where do you reduce expenditure? You take it out of health and education generally. No? But if you today not talk about them as expenditures, but rather as investments, you change everything. Take social expenditures as social investments, because that's what you need to transform society. And even if you, how you manage foreign direct investment. China got to 60, 70, 80 billion a year foreign direct investment, there was a catch to it. They made certain that there were strong domestic technology transfer requirements. No, no foreign investment was allowed without that provision. And that's what we need to do. We cannot open up things and not think of creating local capacity, manufacturing or otherwise. And final point, you compare East Punjab with West Punjab in terms of land productivity. At the time of independence, land productivity in West Punjab, which is Pakistan now, was higher than East Punjab. But East Punjab then went through dramatic land reforms and a whole bunch of other things which associated. And now we have a situation, land productivity in East Punjab is two to three times higher than West Punjab. Same land, same people, 
but social conditions were quite different. And I'll stop. Thank you for this opportunity, Nadeem, to talk to people on China. As I said, it is an ocean, and we are a very small boat on it. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Khalid. I mean, DID no, is committed to discussing all Pakistani research that wherever we can find it and learning from wherever we can. I think that's our commitment to openness. We must be open, we must learn. So that's very important. So thank you for giving us your time and we will ask more of you people. Uh, Shahid, would you like to say something on, on, on the discussion so far? Sure, thank you, Nadeem. Um, let me start by saying that, you know, when I first started working on China in the 80s, 70% uh, nearly of the economy was state controlled, state owned, run by the state owned enterprises. And I must have visited scores of these state owned enterprises, the large ones, the small ones. Mm -hmm. And what struck you most was the absence of any work ethic. There were, these places were completely moribund. There was no evidence of any dynamism of any kind in these places. Mm -hmm. It was pretty, pretty disheartening to watch them. And you didn't feel that China had any hope as long as this kind of system remained in place. It was highly bureaucratized. It was highly controlled. It had just emerged from the Cultural Revolution. There were a lot of scars from that. Mm -hmm. Okay. How did things change? The things changed, as I said, because they actually relaxed these controls. They relaxed these controls step by step, but they greatly relaxed them. They allowed market incentives to prevail and that those market incentives then galvanized the society and made possible what somebody mentioned, the township and village enterprises. These were never ordained by the center. Deng Xiaoping was taken completely by surprise by when they arose, but they arose because of the relaxation of the control and the partial dismantling of regulations and bureaucratic uh, checks on the economy. So I think that's really important that one takes into account that this work ethic wasn't there. It right. emerged. But the, but the TVs were not owned by private groups, just to. They were not. They were not. They were quasi. Remember, the people were. Local, local governments were. Yeah, local governments them. allowed them, and local mm. governments provided protection, and local cadres were often the ones who owned them. Mm. But let's be clear that mm. they were quasi private. That if you didn't they didn't remove all the checks on them, they wouldn't have emerged. Uh, the second thing is about WTO and China's exports. Mm. I tend to agree that subsequent to its entry into WTO and the huge surge in China's exports, that these have actually been a drag on the mm. development of late starting economies such as China. I mean, the ability to compete with China on a wide range of things, because China exports virtually everything, has been a problem for late starting countries. I work on Vietnam and I can tell you that today, Vietnam, which is considered a star economy in Southeast Asia, struggles to compete with China on things like garments, plastic footwear, canvas footwear. They simply cannot match Chinese productivity today given Chinese wages, which are far higher than Vietnamese wages. So it's a big concern for developing countries that China is a very, very uh, powerful competitor in the world market. My third point is regard to the hukou system. The hukou system embraces 290 million people. 
290 million people who form an underclass in China, who have been discriminated against for two or three decades, and who, because of this discrimination, have not managed to get whatever uh, you know, training is needed, their children do not get the proper education, their ch children do not get healthcare. And a new book, by, which is called The Invisible China, says that this very large group of people is going to be a drag on China's future development. Because you know, this cohort is there, they are going to be stuck with this. And this, this group of people simply has not benefited the way Chinese uh, urban uh, classes have benefited. So my fourth point is about uh, freedoms. China has no political freedom. If you'd see the discrimination against minorities, it's really a black mark. Uh, not much has been said about it here in this forum, but you know, we read about it every day in the newspapers. And so even though there are certain economic freedoms and as Khalid, you pointed out, there are all these demonstrations in scattered all over China which once were reported very precisely, but are no longer being reported, suggests to me that there's a great effort to suppress them. No senior private sector uh, leader in China is safe from being suddenly vanishing and appearing then on TV and apologizing for all sorts of things. That suggests to me that it's you know, a, a, a pretty tightly controlled system. Fifth, local leadership. I think the local leadership, as you pointed out, in China has been very important and quite influential and very competitive. And they have actually achieved a lot. And I know that whenever I went and talked to a mayor, all he talked about was what he could do to improve his county, his province or whatever, and to grow faster. He, he, there was always this, and he had a whole <laughs> bunch of numbers at his fingertips, which you never see anywhere else. But the reason why this worked was because of party control and discipline. Those were the people who were pulling the strings. He knew that if he didn't succeed, he would end up somewhere in Xinjiang, you know, <laughs> turning over some, some earth somewhere. Tibet, so, Tibet. Yeah, Tibet, somewhere. But mm. that was very clear. So in the Pakistani case, you can have you know, a better system of appointing local leaders, but without that authoritarian party, that powerful, all-encompassing authoritarian party, you won't really get anywhere. I don't think it will work. In fact, I would be all for less bureaucracy, a dismantling of the bureaucracy or some of the regulations in Pakistan, this Raj, which is still persisting rather than more bureaucracy or a more capable bureaucracy. Because as Nadim pointed out, it'll be 10 or 15 years before you get to that capable bureaucracy. And finally, let me say a word about uh, BRI. I've been writing about it, thinking about it, and I'm saying that there are benefits from it. The benefits are that Pakistan gets some of the infrastructure which it has been lacking. And that infrastructure in principle could crowd in private investment and help China, Pakistan develop. But I would say that the, there is a downside also. The downside was pointed out by others that by developing this infrastructure and by allowing Chinese penetration into the economy, uh, you are also exposing Pakistan's economy to a lot more competition from China. 
penetration of Chinese companies into many different areas. And I'm saying, unless we are very opportunistic like the Chinese were to take full advantage of this foreign investment from China and this infrastructure that has been put in place, unless we have a plan of action, I don't think we'll benefit a great deal from this. We may be left with a lot of stranded assets. We may have a lot of assets which generate actually no return and we will have debts that we will have to repay. So what can Pakistan learn from China? I think the Chinese development state with its focus on, I would say, export development in initially and subsequently that has changed and rightly so. I think that development state with a consistent long-term focus on development and the desire on the part of average Pakistanis to become better off, to become affluent, to, be, to, you know, to improve their lot. If the country as a whole and people as a whole don't want to improve their lot, you're not going to get anywhere. The Chinese definitely have demonstrated that. I remember when I was in England, I used to visit Harry Johnson and he said, you know why England lags behind? Uh, British people just like to stay poor, whereas those <laughs> in the continent are trying to get better. They're trying to develop themselves. They're trying to get rich. We don't want to get rich. We just want to wallow in whatever our culture is over here. So Pakistan needs that development state. It needs foreign direct investment. And perhaps it needs to do more in building up its human capital and using the human capital, which it has scattered all over the world, which the Chinese have used to great effect. The diaspora has been incredibly important and the diaspora has been very loyal. I'm not sure our diaspora is as loyal. Thank you. Can I just add one specific point uh, to Shahid's uh, summary? I mean, you take uh, China's trade is roughly a little over $4 trillion. Huh? If you assume 5% of that will come through CPEC, had we insisted on putting a small tariff on goods going through, say 5% of that trade goes through CPAC, your, your situation as a state would have added four or $5 billion a year just for the privilege of having trade go through you, yeah. which will make your life much easier as a state. You know, small things like that have large consequences. Fair point, fair point, fair point. Saeed, any last thoughts, any questions, answers, etc.? Go ahead. Is Saeed there? Sir, Saeed's up is disconnected at the moment. <clears throat> okay, fair enough. <clears throat> okay, folks. I think we had a very thoughtful, very encouraging discussion. <clears throat> I don't know how to sum it up. All I can say is what I wrote in my book a while ago, that unfortunately, the solution nowadays is an open economy. I don't worry so much about capital controls, Khalid, as I worry about thought controls or policy controls. We don't make any policy at all. Our policy yeah. by donors. Our policy yeah, neo neoclassicals don't worry about controls. I, I understand. No, no, I'm saying I'm saying <laughs> on the other side. I'm saying that quite frankly, <laughs> I would add add a Debro theorem six, which would be close down the economy undertake your own change, build your own state, and then open out, which is what China did. Unfortunately, the problem is, for the last 10 years, I can list this, and Chahid, maybe we should have a debate on this once. The NEPRA law was made by the World by the USAID. The Competition Commission was made by the World Bank. The OGRA law was made by the World Bank. The Central Banking law was done by the, uh, by the IMF. 
The uh, public financial management law was done by DFID and by uh, Oxford Policy Management, and I can go on and on. All our laws are virtually written by donors. Our bureaucracy has gone to sleep. Our leadership has gone to sleep. They have no desire to think. They have no, they've gotten even lazier. We used to have a very good irrigation system in Shai Sahib, you, you will remember Kirmani Sahib. I remember at many dinners, I pushed Kirmani Sahib into talking about the irrigation system. And his last words, um, I still remember, not last, whatever, his words before he died was, I took, he said, look, we all ran away to the World Bank from the best irrigation system in the world because, hey, that's what the incentives were. And now we sit with an irrigation system, which a, which a young girl uh, recently has done a, uh, she's in Stanford now, she's done a thesis on this, how irrigation system is totally dismantled, totally discouraged and kind of, now, not functioning at all. So we have all kinds of problems arising. So the issue that I wrote in my book too is that look, for God's sakes, we have to develop a thoughtful government, which is what you're saying. China developed a thoughtful government. China went through its cultural change behind closed doors and it did. And China started making its own. All of you have worked on China. I worked a little bit on China, not too much, but I used to go there for training. And I saw that those guys behave very, very differently from us. They learned from us, but they did not follow us. They didn't take our laws and just take them to parliament. We are caught in the best practice trap. For example, Shahid, thanks to the World Bank and the IFC, we have just made a mortgage refinance corporation. So we have made a Fannie Mae in Pakistan now. <laughs> 10 years down the road, when there is a crisis, you people will sit there and tell us, oh, how stupid we were. Why did we make the Fannie Mae? But I can tell you for a fact, when I was in the planning commission, I wrote a strong note against it. I killed it. But you can't kill donors. They come back. They're like a hydra, a hydra-headed whatever monster. They develop a new head and they turn up. So if we are going to develop new agencies all the time, we keep fragmenting the government further and further. The government has very little incentive to do anything. Now, everybody in the government is dispirited. Nothing will happen. So how do we develop? I think we have to take the Chinese approach. Deep cultural change at home. How will, what leader will do it? I have no idea. How will it happen? I don't know. And then heads must roll. Cultural revolution lost a lot of people. Heads must roll. But I take what you're saying. China did it its own way. It did not follow anybody else. It did it its own way. It, it problem solved. It moved forward flexibly. It innovated. It looked after its own interest. And I think that's very good. For those of my friends who say follow China and there's a China model, I think, I hope they will have learned from this webinar that the China model is hard to follow. It's a very intriguing model, very good model, but it's very hard for us to follow unless we change ourselves. So thank you very much, folks. I've enjoyed it enormously. We will, inshallah, call you again to do something else with us. Thank you. All the best, folks. Khuda hafiz. Thank, thank you, Nadeem. That was very thank organized. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Shahid. Bye-bye. <laughs>